Hello. <laughs> After a while away, I'm Will Eaves. I'm a novelist and poet, and I'm one half of the New Romantics, which I hereby declare reopened for its third season. And my fellow neuromantic is... My name's Sophie Scott and I'm a cognitive neuroscientist at University College London and what you can hear there is thunder happening outside. Because we'd like to have a seasonal reopening uh, to this podcast so we've arranged some external special effects. Yes. Welcome back and for our first episode in season three we're going to be looking at letters and handwriting. And typing, because I think it's sort of it's an interesting subject. One often imagines that the various technologies and processes that you use to get thoughts and ideas and facts down on paper or into print, you know, you assume the transparency of the medium you're using. But in actual fact, they're not transparent. And there are lots of questions to be asked about how paper and ink and keyboards and screens affect the transmission of an idea to the page. But... If it's okay with you, Sophie, I thought we'd start with the literature side of things. Absolutely, because that's what we were first talking about, wasn't it? The idea of writing letters. Yeah. So the book we're looking at, and I've taken sort of three letters from it, is called Letters from Isae, Life on the Edge in a School in South Sudan. And they're letters written by a writer and historian called Elizabeth Hodgkin, who, after having worked at Amnesty International and for various other agencies um, in the 60s and 70s, and 80s, went to work just before retirement, or just after retirement, in fact, in South Sudan, in a small school in the very south of South Sudan, in the mountains, and the village was called Izoe, and she worked at the secondary school, St Augustine's. And it's a very beautiful, self-possessed, and rather moving account of trying to teach people in conditions of rural poverty and want, with the scars of at least two Sudanese civil wars around her and around the school, the threat of violence never far away, remoteness a problem, money always a problem, and illness. And I read this by chance a few months ago. It was given to me by John Ryle, who's the publisher. It's a very small press that produces this book called City of Words. And I had an idea before I read it that I was going to really enjoy it, and I did. And I think what I enjoyed most about it was the way in which Liz gives us a very, very strong sense of her personal attachment to a region and a profession. One's left in no doubt that she cares enormously about teaching young people and also teaching women uh, in this part of Africa. But at the same time, it's a very material account, and there's a great deal of information in it about the nature of the church nearby, the bureaucracies, the difficulties in getting materials, young women who disappear because they've become pregnant, the fight to keep people in the classroom when they can be recruited as child soldiers, more or less at the drop of the hat, the difficulties of dealing uh, with violence in and out of the classroom, or the threat of it, and the cultural sort of habituation of beatings. Mm. Uh, all these things are, are, are very simply but eloquently described and I think the thing that it really made me think about was how we think of letters as being personal things but their origin is in transmission of information yeah trying to get a story across and getting as much content into it as possible I didn't know anything about this uh, until you sent it to me and I, I really did enjoy reading it I would it's a small press people but you can find this book on the internet to buy it's available and I would really recommend it I'm going to go and buy it, and I'm going to buy a copy for my copy for my mum as well because I think she'd enjoy it. 
it's very beautifully written. You hear her voice and she is, I mean, she's telling to people far away, presumably back in Europe and the UK, yeah. exactly what life is like. And you get that sense of letters and that things happen in the writing. Like at one point she disappears and comes back and says, oh, I just had malaria and been extremely unwell. I was found collapsed. And then you get a whole kind of, she can't quite work out what happened to her or who found her or how she got to the hospital and the different sort of voices. Oh, the malaria thing is fantastic, isn't it? Because there are so many competing versions yeah. of what did happen to her and she makes a sort of joke out of it. But it's also clearly terrifying. Yeah. You know, she was she was in a coma. Yeah. She had collapsed. Uh, in case it's not perfectly obvious, I am not the person with the literary ability here. But she said a very, very, very beautiful way of phrasing things. It's very kind of a clear style. She gives you things with quite big emotional impact sometimes, still with a, in a sort of very measured way. She's she's, sh- she's not telling you that ter- things are terrible. No, I think that's partly a consequence of training because she was a researcher at Amnesty. I saw her quite recently. I don't know her, but I met her for the first time. We were talking about the demands of having worked there and the, how different it was writing this book. And she said that, of course, in Amnesty, you have to... It's detail and accuracy. That's, you know, the personal effect must be, obviously, as a no-no. Yeah. You're, you're there to kind of get the data on potential human rights abuses. Mm. That's the mission. And so it's detail and accuracy, and that comes over, I think, Amnesty, or wasn't it? It was about letter writing, wasn't it? Wasn't one of the things you'd do when you joined Amnesty would be you would write letters yeah, to where yeah. people I were being held? Yeah, I think also Penn International. Penn yeah. is the other one, yeah. Yes, there were lots of letter writing campaigns. I remember seeing a documentary which was fronted by Jim Carrey and it was about his work. And he was much more appealing, really, as a, talking about comedy and about being an actor than, than, he, than I actually find him as an actor. But he said, the thing with comedy, and particularly stand-up comedy, is that the reason we like it so much is that we, we sort of long for the absence of ourselves. That's the way he put it, his words exactly. We want to hand over responsibility to someone else for a period. And it's, it's one person on a stage, and it's a very... It's a very funneled kind of handing over. And I think that there's something about that in letter writing too Mm. because you are handing over what you have to say to this person far away and you are doing it in such a way that somehow your absence when the letter is received and read is extremely important Mm. to the way in which it's read. And it's, it's truer, I think, of letter writing and letter reading than it is of almost any other kind of writing. Just before we came on air, I used the word legacy act about something else we were talking about. In a funny kind of way, when you read a letter, it's a sort of legacy from someone. Mm. The other person could almost be vanished entirely. Yeah. And this is the only material evidence you have left of them. And there's something of that here, I think. There's such an interesting mix because it keeps that sort of narrative. Like, here's a story, here's... You could imagine this just as a book. I've written a book about my experiences. But the fact that they're letters, or they've started life as letters maintains that kind of like half of a conversation feel to this. This is an, there's an ear that this is intended for. I'm Absolutely. talking to someone when I tell this story. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that's really interesting about letters. A few years ago, and I don't mean I mean relatively recently, like probably since lockdown actually, I got much more interested in writing letters again and I started writing letters to people, even people I had no particular interest in hearing them, I started writing letters to. And I was doing that because I could have sent them an email or a text message. But I wanted that feeling of a connection mm. that, that meant more. You've spent more time doing mm. it. It takes more effort to find the paper and get the pen mm. 
find the address, buy a stamp, walk to a post box. I wanted that to be part of it. I wanted that yeah. to be yeah. part of the, like, I mean this. Anthropologists would say it's material evidence. You know, it's, it's an yeah. artefact. That goes right to the origins of writing, actually. And the origins of writing are, are sort of pictograms and clay tablets and, you know, in Mesopotamia and Uruk. And they have a variety of um, apparently technical and bureaucratic origins. But actually, the other thing that, that people, historians of writing are getting interested in is the fact that they are objects Mm. they are if not gifts they're sort of bequests in some way bequests to the communal sense of social cohesion Mm. or to libraries or to the early libraries and uh, yeah so I think that sense that as you said there's an ear listening and there's a body receiving what I have to say is important as is the associated idea that I'm doing this because it's a way of controlling the information and making sure it survives and survival is in there somewhere you know I'm worried that all sorts of things could go wrong and I might not survive it might not the information might not survive in another way and emails and electronic messages that it's it's an ocean of stuff out there if I just do that it won't be preserved it will be lost and lost just in the the mix of it all. There's no, you know, just here is a lot, here are a list of things that are your current inbox, and some of them might be totally personal. Most of them won't be. There's nothing different about yeah. qualitatively different about the ones that are actually special until you read them. And even then, it's it's a different thing. I'm not saying don't email me by all means. Send me nice emails. But so when we were talking about doing neuromantics on letters, I really did try and find psychological studies of letter writing and you can't really find it not that would sort of pass a mm. extremely rigorous scientific muster of the neuromantics which is you know you <laughs> want a peer-reviewed properly controlled study and led me more into handwriting but I think that handwriting element is still it's, it's integral to it because it's you know handwriting is ex- expressive as the voice is you know and like the voice you you kind of want to have nice handwriting you want your handwriting to be a certain thing and my father who had absolutely dreadful handwriting when just absolutely terrible he was dyspraxic and made to write with his right hand although he was left-handed and consequently as an adult he really couldn't write with handwriting at mm. all so he would use typewriters a lot and he would do all sorts of things to try and make the typewriter a typewritten letter be like a handwritten letter he would be changing cases and underlinings and go in and put annotations by hand to just put that extra bit in you know Yes, to enliven it. I mean, it's a nice point. I wonder whether Liz, in writing this book, I mean, I'm guessing that these probably were handwritten yes. to begin with because she makes the point that, of course, there was no connection and no phone signal. So no. I can't imagine that they were emailed. She wouldn't have had a printer. No. Yeah, yeah. So I think they must have been handwritten and sent yeah. out. Yeah, that's what I thought. And it's also, it's just possible, too, that, that maybe one or two of them were constructed post hoc you know, from notes and journals. Yeah. But but then that's that's not that surprising. Uh, a journal is a letter to the self. There's a still an audience, isn't there? Yeah. You're writing for someone in a diary. Yeah. I think also this, letters and journals are a way for the self not to be interrupted, which speaks to the, the paper we're going to look at in a, in, a, in a little later on. You often find that shy people or people who've culturally, historically, traditionally not had a voice, have left very interesting bodies of letters. Women. The epistolary novel, in part, there's a half of the epistolary novel which is fascinating about women's power and women's voices, not just in literature, but in in society, and that it's in correspondence that they have flow. Mm. 
you get there's no no one to talk over you yeah. in your letter is there you get the yeah. you have the floor you have yeah. the floor and actually just thinking about it austin satirizes that in in persuasion very well because mary musgrove takes the floor in the letters that are sent to anne <laughs> but of course <laughs> she she is characteristically uninterrupted because she's you know she's a sort of she talks all the time and the letter is exactly as she speaks so I think Austin is sort of taking the expectation that there might be some sort of privileged level of coherence in the letter <laughs> turning on its head. Those are really funny. I should have actually sent them to you, but the um, oh well, we just have to do another next one, time. Won't we? Yeah, 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 definitely. It's a really fascinating book, and you know, it's not an area of the world that I know. I thought before I read it, will this be the kind of thing where I'll be very aware that it's you know written by a white person in Africa going over to be a teacher? Uh, will there be an element of the you know, white saviorism about it in a way that is absolutely missing, mm. as far as I can tell, because she's it, it, she says things that are quite difficult to read, in the face of all this sort of what we call you know corporal punishment going around the place, which can lead to other kinds of violence and 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 implies other kinds of mm. violence, and she often simply doesn't get involved. Mm. You know, she just leaves the room because. Really, there are too many things involved. And for her to impose herself would, A, be uncomfortable, but at one level of ethical analysis, wrong. This is a very complex yeah. situation, but she's completely honest about it. Mm. And I found that both, you know, quite disturbing, but thought-provoking too. Yes, I was struck by that. I mean, I need to read the whole book. I've just read the chapters that you sent me, but I didn't get the sense of... She was accepting, yeah, and not assuming that she would change. There were clearly some things she worried about, like the girls and education, yeah, and who was getting the girls pregnant and the, the view of the girls. But she was sort of commenting on that at a slight distance, clearly doing what she could do, but without kind of standing in judgment, yeah, and with total understanding, too. And of course, it's very interesting that you know, quite a few of the pregnancies happened because the girls had had relationships with i think taxi drivers yeah dri uh, people from know, outside from yeah. people from outside and, and one of the reasons simply is that it's relatively speaking quite a sort of stable and lucrative profession and a taxi driver was seen as quite a catch so there was a whole sense of you know the, the, that age-old problem with you know future security and in a very patriarchal culture it was deftly and movingly done i thought without it actually being at all emotional. It was... And the extent to which the children valued and the whole community valued education. Yeah. Like the distance, these children were walking for sort of four hours and then staying at the school, yeah. and going home again at the end of term, because yeah. this, this was how much it was considered to matter to a lot of the families and to the children themselves. I mean, extraordinary, the, the moment where... The, I think Father Ben or, or one of the kind of... The, the, the new head teacher produces this list of things that he wants students to have. And it's, it's a, hoe. All, all a hoe, a slasher for the sort of compulsory agricultural element on Saturday mornings. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, these are things that quite a lot of these children just don't have lying around. There's no money anywhere. And can't they can't get. And can't yeah. get. So they turn up to school having walked for hours and hours and hours, days in some cases, and then they have to turn tail because they haven't turned up with a slasher and walk the 30 kilometres they've just come in order to sort of beg, borrow or steal yeah. another item. Yeah. And they do it without a sort of 
the second thing they complained. Yeah. 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 This book, Letters from Isohei, makes you think quite hard about what's normal for people. Yeah. What's normal and what we call hardship and what it is for a person from a very exploitative, relatively rich culture like this to start talking about hardship. Mm. You know, because undoubtedly, of course, there's massive hardship in this country, but it's not, uh, what's the psychologist term? It's not a sort of transferable word with ready available meaning across cultures because it really, really does mean different things. Yeah. And you have to be aware of that or you become aware of it. Yeah, it sounds easy to say you take these things for granted, but I do think we do take education very much for granted. Even things would be very serious for you in the UK, but there would still be some expectation that education would be available to you. I mean, just as a sort of side historical note, this book is written, I think, around from between 2011 to 2013 when Elizabeth Hodgkin was in um, Israel. And South Sudan has gained its independence. You know, it, it's a country that there have been civil wars in the 60s and 70s and in the 90s. And after she leaves, there's another war. The, the threat of things falling apart is, is present and real, even in this state of rural isolation, mm. it's, which occasionally looks like an idyll. I thought I'd just read the last bit from the last letter. Uh, which I gives the reader an idea of, or the listener an idea of, what I mean when I say it's both factual and moving. The rainy season ends as the term ends. Suddenly the grass is dry and scorpions appear in houses. The weather is still pleasant, though, with a light, warm breeze, while in Torrit and Juba it is becoming really hot during the day. This week the local students set off home, girls with trunks on their heads, boys mostly with backpacks, walking in groups of six or more for safety and company. Ten of them set out on the four-hour walk to Labira at 4am. With a young person's blissful lack of understanding of physical limitations of an old Kawaja like myself, M urged me to come with him to his village, four hours trek through the mountains. This was to talk to his father about the history of Aninya, Anyanya in the area. But walking in this season is too hard, and the heat dries the mouth up as soon as you drink. Meanwhile, students who are going home to Torrit or Juba, too far to walk, have to wait for vehicles which may not travel at all. Last term we had the lorry, but now it's stuck with gearbox problems. But this is Isohe, so we are used to it. A town with no telephone network, with nothing in the market, with roads deep in mud and a gun crime every fortnight. But with beautiful mountains, a good climate, fertile land, a strong women's group and the only undamaged church in Equatoria and our two wondrous struggling schools. So, yeah, I think we both thoroughly recommend this. It's really excellent. Um, lovely book. And that brings us on to um, the paper. So over to you. <laughs> Sharp. Jarring change of pace. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I don't know. Handwriting, you know. So, so I tried to find something about sort of, I, I couldn't really find anything in terms of experimental psychology or cognitive neuroscience about. 
the act of writing letters and anything that I could find would take us more off into like intentional communication, which is interesting. And I'm sure we can come back to that. But I was in it's the act of writing. I was trying to kind of find something on. So I did delve into this literature, which asks about the difference between handwriting and typing. Uh, it could be on, you know, once upon a time on a, type, on a typewriter nowadays on a computer. And the, this paper is called, Is Typewriting More Resources Demanding Than Handwriting in Undergraduate Students? And it's by Bourgier and Olive, who I think are in, they're in France. France, yeah. yeah. Poitiers, yeah. The, the studies have shown that, for example, it, it varies slightly on how you run the experiment, but frequently if people have typed notes, they tend to remember less than if they have written notes. And that seems to be partly because of some of the demands of handwriting versus typewriting. So when you are typing, you are selecting the letters to press. And when you are writing, you make the letters. And that gives you a fundamentally different engagement with the act. It's an act of embodied cognition. It is. And also, I hadn't really thought about this till I read the papers... When you're handwriting, and this is going to come over very well on a podcast, I'm now demonstrating this with a pencil in my hand, but you are combining two things that humans are good at, one of which is very fine, detailed motor control with executive function and language. So you can find very detailed motor control, say if somebody's stitching or doing very fine carving, and obviously you find language, um, and here I mean hand motor control, you know, when I'm talking, I'm using fine motor control of the mouth and language. But the, there's something writing connects the hand to these executive functions and thinking that seem to be different. And I think the other crucial thing, which they don't go into, and I think it's a thing that's missing from the paper, is the fact that if you're writing with a pen, the pen is a much closer approximation of the finger in the dirt or the finger in the wet sand. Yeah than a keyboard or a screen. And I think that's very important, that interplay between handwriting and executive function. I think so, because the the pen is a tool and... But also a proxy for the finger. Exam, you're literally... I'm still trying to show the solid-state recorder. I'm trying to show it, the pencil I'm showing, holding in my hands. You are holding like chopsticks. You are holding it. It becomes an extension to the, the, the hand in a way that a keyboard doesn't, you're yeah. acting on the keyboard. My colleague Tamar Makin has argued very persuasively that when people use things like this in their hands, rather like with prostheses for missing limbs, it never becomes the hand. It's still a tool, but you're manipulating the world with that tool yeah. rather than typing on something. So yeah. it is that, the again, the engagement is different. So what they've done here is they were trying to ask, well, which of these two things is more effortful to do? So they had people making notes either by typing or by writing and then they gave them a secondary task where they had to respond to things and they were looking at the reaction time. So that's kind of a measure of how difficult is the main task that you're doing. And what they found, which is interesting, is that their evidence suggested that students have longer reaction times to the secondary task when they were typewriting, working on the computer, than when they were handwriting, suggesting that actually there are more resources being used to type than to write so actually it is more cognitively demanding perhaps in a physical way and by physical i mean in terms of controlling the hands to type than to write and they have some suggestions as to why that might be and i hadn't thought about these before so we are taught who knows for how much longer in schools we are taught how to write Mm. and we're taught how to write with pencils and with pens and we're taught first with non-joined up writing and then you learn joined up writing I'm now really giving away my age 
Um, but that's something that is instructed and how to form the letters yeah. to more or less. And it's, a long t- and it's quite a long-term developmental yes. thing, isn't it? You because do it, it for years. You do yeah. it for years. It takes seven years. And they, they say in the paper, and I think it's about right, yeah. it's only at 13 or 14 that it becomes a sort of automatic. Yeah, and that no one, unless you have had the good fortune to have somebody teach you to touch type, which of course would have been quite common a couple of decades ago when lots of people had jobs as secretaries, nowadays people learn to type on their own. So people tend to develop very idiosyncratic styles. Not necessarily... I have a really useless... <laughs> I drive my partner mad with how I type because I use all the fingers on my left hand and I stab away with the forefinger of my right hand, yeah. which is a really inefficient way of using the keyboard. And it does make that more difficult for me. That's one of the things that makes it a more chunky, difficult, lumpy way of getting engaging. I mean, it didn't seem to me as... It wasn't as much of a surprise to me as, as it seemed to me to, to the to the you know, the the academics behind this paper, I have to say. The thing behind all this is, what is the point at which a practised skill becomes ingrained, Mm. easily accessible, automatic? Automatic isn't really the right word, but it's... It means there's something precise in psychology, yeah. Yeah. But um, something that's readily accessible. Yeah. The truth is that there are all sorts of skills we have that require practice before they become second nature, as we would say. I was slightly perturbed by the fact there seemed to be so news to them and it, it, it i mean it's not commonly for example and it's interesting that, that keyboards of another kind pianos and musical instruments generally in fact are directly comparable to what's been talked about here mm-hmm. you have to learn this new way of mapping a physical object against abstract unembodied knowledge about musical relations and harmonic relations over time before it becomes second nature. However, the interesting thing about it is, and I think they touch on this in the paper, there is a point at which once it's reached sort of automatization levels, then that is the point at which you can then begin to reintroduce a very personal interpretive level, rather like handwriting, Mm. or in the case of musical instruments, something like a personal interpretation where it makes sense to begin to talk albeit metaphorically, about one's touch on the keyboard or yeah. one's, the way in which you appreciate a piece of music and it becomes more independently minded again. Mm. I didn't think that it wasn't a surprise that you'd have to have that amount of time learning typing in order to be able to treat it as one treats handwriting. I suppose, if I'm being brutally honest, I think that's partly because in psychology we tend to look at somebody who can do a task and say, well... That's the task. That's that. So let's do, let's just study typing, not think how did they get there. In fact, one of the things we we treat development as being separate. Yeah. You know, we talk about child development, and then we talk about cognitive psychology. Well, just pretty much everything you're doing in cognitive psychology developed. Why don't we think of it as all being part of the same? You know, to understand the adult mind, we should be thinking a lot about how the child got there and the teenager got there, and we don't. We're not very good at mapping. We we treat it as a different thing. And we tend not to unpack the the thing itself. So, as you said, on the face of it, typing and writing, handwriting are two... The, the, well, the aim is the same, it's written language, so how different could they be? So, again, you might... People will often treat the, the sort of differences there as being very superficial. And I'm not... I, so, while I'm saying in a very long-winded way, I'm, I'm not surprised because that tends not to be how psychologists think about things yeah. unless they are developmental psychologists. And they say, oh, my God, yeah. this is really important, you should study it. It's not the case that typing is bad for everything. So they use the phrase linear to describe things that typing is good at, which means if you're typing notes 
sort of actually getting something sequentially in the right order as someone is saying it, typing is quite good for that because it pretty much forces you to do that, whereas handwriting affords you the ability to go back and forth much more easily. You're not committed to stay, you know, you have to physically move to a different bit on the, on the you have to do something different on a typewritten, you know, yeah. I keep saying typewritten, on a computer interface. And that again is limited. The advantages of having something in a linear structure isn't what you always want. I mean, yeah. completely, okay, plural of anecdote is not data, but my experience of writing, and no matter what I'm writing, grant, stand-up comedy, anything, I have to start off with a pen in my hand and a piece of paper. And I only yeah. discovered this when my son was a baby and I used to have these very short gaps when he was asleep and I could write. And I was somewhere in a cafe and he'd gotten to sleep and I found myself turning my bag upside down and shaking it onto the floor to find a pen because I had some stuff I needed. And I had a computer with me, but I I had to start by writing it. There yeah. was no, and, and that's because the page in a pen gives you the possibility of something completely non-linear in terms of planning out ideas. You don't, you can... You can have linearity in there, but you can then also go off and mind map whatever you want. In a, I think also the there's, a, there's the argument, too, that uh, you have to do it that way around because before you can get to kind of making your observations or coming up with an opinion or an argument, you have to be able to make your mark and say, this is me doing the thinking, this is me doing the arguing, this is me doing the writing. And you can only really do that, or some people feel they can only really mm. do that when they have a pen in their hands. Mm. Because, of course, in handwriting, there's the semantic load of what you're writing. Then there's also the graphing, yeah. which is which is highly... Well, it's completely individual. It's completely idiosyncratic. Mm. It's like thumbprints. There's not, you know, yeah. everyone's hand script is different. And it's somehow, to, to get to the information, you have to come through the script, which is a way of saying, it's me. Mm. I'm doing this. And although that might be absence from the semantic, that might be completely absent from the from the received meaning, it seems to have some importance in getting towards objectivity. There's something else going on here which is very interesting. Actually, about writing in general, so this could be handwriting, this could be sitting at the computer, or typing on your phone even, but actually it is in and of itself creative. Actually doing the writing becomes part of how you kind of access ideas. It's not that you're sitting and being, I've got all everything in my mind I want to write, and then you start writing it. No, yeah, The engagement, yeah. and that's um, there's a whole kind of body of research expressly addressing this. There's a really lovely example of... Um, there were two very famous psychologists in the 80s and 90s, Rommel Hart and McClelland, who were the, kind of right at the forefront of uh, the sort of parallel distributed processing, the father of all the machine learning you, you see nowadays, or one of the fathers of that. And apparently they were having... had offices near each other, and Rommel Hart was talking to McClelland, leaning against his door, and they were talking about something. And then Rommel Hart said, oh, no, hang on, no. And he said, no, I'm, I'm going to go and write you an email left so that yeah. he could write it and, and but, you know again it's an act it is creative and it is qualitatively different from the creativity involved in talking yeah i i think that there, there might be another thing here which is to do with the amount of time that technologies have been around part of the argument of this paper is that you know we live in a new world of of keyboard interfaces and we don't yet know what the implications are for education and learning and you're not taught to type, but it's going to be increasingly important for children to sort of learn it from an earlier age so that they can automatise the process and then not have to think about it, but be able mm. to kind of answer questions and write essays fluently. And the paper and the experiments show 
that you know this is more difficult for them because they're still learning to type so that they they haven't got as much memory apparently available to do these other things but this is something that people say very 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 early on in the history of writing one of the things that plato says is writing is forgetting so when a new technology for processing conceptual information comes along i wonder how long it takes the human animal <laughs> you know over generations to get used to it yeah because i think back in 600 500 600 bc and writing has been around a couple 3000 years i think yeah. but possibly not much more so one could have an argument about the the, the meaning of the the time spans yeah. but it's still a very privileged thing you know not many people do it mm. it's new it's a bit scary like computers <laughs> um, and it has this enormous power and it's disruptive mm. because it has enormous power and if you think about the kinds of arguments we have about the processed world now they're very similar arguments and they're to do with us not knowing what will be the end result of this new bit of technology and I'd include typing with typewriters with that, relatively speaking, because it's only 100 years, 150 years or something. And I mean, people got worried about the penny post. Yeah. Like the absolute horror of people being able to send letters to each other very quickly. You yeah. know, it, there's uh, every new bit of technology causes some horror that other people will be corrupted by it. But you're right. There's something very hard to articulate about writing and different ways of being able to communicate with writing because it's so strange about when it first appears. And it's, it does seem that modern humans have been around for a couple of millennia living fairly comfortable happy lives if we can understand you know interpret some of the ways that sort of prehistoric sites have been interrogated on this you know doing beautiful paintings and they, they didn't seem to have you know that were didn't seem to come from a very disruptive time and then suddenly everything changes mm. about 3,000 years ago and you start getting writing proper copy up in a couple of different places well several different places but also that explosion of other things yeah tools suddenly change do you remember we went to that thing at the um that exhibit at that thing the exhibit at the British Library Ice Age Art yes and that was kind of one of the it's one of these points where you suddenly get all this stuff emerging and just things are beautiful and recognizably aesthetically kind of engaging for people we don't really know what triggered any of that no. Maybe it was writing. I don't know. Maybe you know, maybe some of this is older than writing, but there's some we don't think there's any kind of significant change in the brains of the people. Something no. environmental or cultural came in and moved yeah. across and And I everything. think we there's a general sense that we may be in the throes of that. Yeah. You know, whether we call it the second or third or fourth industrial revolution, I think we're still it, it's we're it's still those, live. We're yeah. in one of the we're in one of those moments. I think that, in a way, the focus on the keyboard, I think, is slightly misleading because, of course, you know, one of the very common ways of manipulating the keyboard arrangement now isn't on those kind of four lines of, mm. of, a, of a, you know, a computer manual keyboard. It's on a phone mm. and it's, it's, it's much more, in a way, it looks more numerical, really, the way you kind of arrange those things. It's, it's, it's much more related to the business putting in your passcode yeah. and, and the way you do it isn't 
isn't the sort of multi-digit. No. It's, um, it's thumbs and one or two fingers for scrolling. Now, quite what significance that might have for this paper is an interesting question. But I think the underlying thing is not really about the precise nature of this bit of technology. It's that handwriting, as we said at the start, is very, very close to the body. Mm. And these other things are progressively further away from it, even when they're small and portable, mm. because they're contingent. They rely on so many other bits of things. Electricity, kit, rare metals, um, visibility, light distortion. It, yeah. They're actually very, very sensitive to environment, where the finger in the sand isn't particularly. Yeah, yeah. there's a robustness to that. There's a... Yeah. And it is sort of humbling to think. So, I mean, you're absolutely right. We are going through another change. There's... How much disruption was there from the appearance of the printing press? Ruin something like that with the internet. Yeah, enormous. It yeah. is how yeah. easy it would be to lose contact with all of that stuff that's not actually physically living on a page is quite extraordinary to think about. You'd be very, it wouldn't take much for you to not be able to get to any of it. And I think that to bring it back to where we came in and thinking also about Liz's dispatches from Izoe, that sense of precarity and of being on the edge of maybe not being able to communicate at all. It's very of the moment, and it's very it's very moving in her work. And I think it's something that all writers, whether they're conscious of it or not, are often thinking about, whether or not you believe in the subconscious. You know, it's, it's there bubbling under, because you just don't know what's the simplest way you can leave your mark. Is it the dot? the curve or the line or is it a combination of all those things i.e writing mm. because if you think about it that's what writing is you know it's the dot the curve and the line manipulated in various ways so mm. that it so that a culture can become transmissible every age feels that it's the end times and, yes. and everyone <laughs> says oh no you know, how it's, it's how how will we cope but the more i suppose what we're both saying is that the the more things depend upon the kind of kit you've got, the more anxious you become about being able to tell other people what your life has been like. The certainty of the pen on the page. If that letter gets to them, they get the, that, nothing else, you know, unless yeah. something material happens to that. That's yeah. the... So maybe that's a good place to leave it. Write more letters. Did you used to write a lot of letters when you were um, yes, growing up? Yes, I did. Yeah, I, re I realised it was a... It was a thing that my friends and I would all write letters to each other. I don't think I have any of them anymore. I know. This is going to make us sound like total codgers. Yeah, completely. But I had the same experience. It was a, such an important thing. I wrote to people all the time. Yeah. I found... Uh, actually, I, it was slightly too weird. And I, I, I found a bag in my mother's house stuffed full of letters. And I just pulled one out and it was one I'd written to my family from going on French exchange in 1981. And this is the first time anybody... I'd ever been away like that. And... It was very strange, and my family had never gone abroad for a holiday. It was completely just unheard of. And it was funny finding the letter, because I, it contained none of what I remember from the French exchange. <laughs> it was obviously what I wanted to tell my family. And it was all about how strange things are here. And there's, you know, the food, trying to make them laugh about what the family dog did and things like that. And none of the things I remember, which is sort of the social things, like I was there on a school trip, I was there with friends, and I remember yeah. the friend stuff. None of that's in the letter. It's clearly, fascinating, yeah, it is, it? yeah. And I think I did it also because I was, you know, as you can probably tell, I was sort of quite a verbal child. But when I was away from people, when they were away from me, I felt their absence. It was a sort of thing I took seriously. Mm. And I missed people. 
enormously. You know, you couldn't, if people were in halls or in another country, you couldn't really ring them up. No. I mean, you could, sort of, you could arrange it. You could, be, yeah, things that had to be in place. Quite difficult. Yeah. But the pen and page and ink were instantly available. And there was also the delicious thing of anticipation, that if you sent yes. this letter, it meant you might get one back. Finding a letter. Handwritten, or your name on that letter, it's clearly not a... I know, and it's just for you. Yeah. I think there's more in this, which we might pick up another time. Let's Yes, let's go to Jane Austen and some of her letters. And let's go to Jane Austen. Let's um, do it. Let's do it. Jane Austen, you're next. <laughs> it's lovely to be back, and we look forward to doing this again soon. Thank you ever so much. Bye-bye. <laughs>